0: Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, wow. Forget my name already. Okay. Yeah, well, my name is Stephen, in fact. It's not Jake. No. Um, So it's so good to see all of you this morning. Honestly, when I wake up and see snow on a Sunday morning, I assume it's just going to be Jamie Day and that everyone's going to stay home. So it's actually really awesome seeing everyone here. Thanks for being here. And I'm so happy that I get to be opening the word with you today, continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, if you haven't uh, been a part of this church long or you haven't been going through this series with us, please take the time to go back through and listen to it. This book is incredible. It's so awesome because it all ties together. Everything ties together. There was so many things happening at the time the book was being written, and there's so many different reminders the author is trying to get across to us. So, we, just putting it all together makes so much more sense. So, when you hear the word conscience, what do you think of? I just want you to think for a second. The word conscience. Now, obviously, this is rhetorical. Otherwise, I feel like I would get a hundred different answers, a hundred different ways. Um, but when I first started this, studying this passage and came across the word conscience, the first thing I thought of immediately was Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. Anyone else? Anyone else Jiminy Cricket? Oh, okay, cool. A couple <laughs> So this conscience-like character is whispering in the ear of Pinocchio the, the rights, the wrongs, what he should do, what he shouldn't do, the whole time. Any situation that presents itself, you have this little, this little creature thing that's, that's talking to him, telling him what to do. So even though it's a, it's a cute way to, to look at it, it is a long way from the truth about what it actually is. It's almost as good as the, the, you know, the little angel and the little demon on the shoulder of every single cartoon character. Like, oh, you should definitely do this. No, you should definitely not do this. Like, that's just, I feel like the way that our culture tries to describe this conscience. And we all have a conscience. So why is it so hard to define? Why is it this weird thing that's so difficult to define? So I recently saw a quote from a pastor that said this. The conscience is a divinely given warning device that reacts to sin and produces accusation and guilt. And then I'm going to add on to the tail end of that, or conviction, or conviction. So I like the way this is presented because it brings into play something that we all have, that little voice that hits us when we mess up. So my question for you this morning is how do you deal with, with this conscience? Is it a burial or a burning? As we go through this, I want you to remember those two words. Is it a burial or is it a burning? So, this morning, we're going to be deep diving into some really, honestly, some deep cultural and historical information that's regarding the tabernacle. You just saw, um, you just heard the passage we're going to be going through, it's a lot of history. There were so many different elements to the Levitical system, and the author of Hebrews is really trying to break it down here. The interesting thing, though, about this particular passage is that even though it's really interesting, even though there's a lot of cool historical, cultural stuff we're going to be talking about, it's not the point. It's not the point the author is trying to get across. It's all about the burial and the burning. So easily in stuff like this we can get into the weeds so easily we can go off course and off track because we found something interesting. We found something cool. Oh, look, look how this connects to this. Look how this connects to this. And we miss the point. So this morning, remember as we go through this, the burial and the burning. Let's pray. God, you are so good. God, we love you and we thank you so much that we are able to come together. God, thank you for bringing us together safely through the little bit of snow that we got, Uh, thank you for the snow. Thank you for just watering this earth, God, taking care of us, that you sustain us in every way. Lord, you are so wonderful. God, I pray that as we go through uh, this passage this morning, God, that you would speak through me, God, that you would remove me from the equation, that it would be all about you and your glory, God. If there's anyone in here this morning that does not truly know you, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their minds and their heart to truly know you and be in a relationship with you. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1 in the book of Hebrews says this, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So this first verse that we're about to discuss, it comes directly off of the heels of the passage that Dan went through last week. It was another reminder, and it's a deeper understanding of Jesus as the great high priest. That was the passage that Dan went through last week, ending with this verse in 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, which in this, in the literal translation of this, it's that the old covenant is getting old, like old age, and it's near disappearing. So we're talking about the great high priest, about Jesus and what he's done, and then it's saying with this old covenant that it's old like old age, and it's about to disappear. And it's really interesting because you're going to see that he says this, and then we dive right into old law. We dive right into symbolism of old law and what it was talking about. So from this step, we can go right back into that verse. Verse 1, I'm going to reread it again. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So the writer here, he's making a transitional statement. In 8.13, leading us to 9.1, where he goes from the discussion, as I said, of the high priest to the place of worship. Going from the high priest to the place. The pattern of the tabernacle. And we're going to see in this, in verse 1 through 5, is a pattern of worship in the old law. It's a pattern of worship. And then it's going to go into 6.8, which is the purpose of the practice. What was the purpose of it? And then from 9 and 10, we get to see the problem. And there's a big problem incorporated in all of this. As we just said, the first verses focus on the structure, which take us directly into verse 2 that says this. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the Holy so, just as a reminder, I know we've talked about this several times, but it's good to take us back. There are three different sections in this tabernacle, this tent that it's referencing here. So, the first was the outer court portion. Then, the first interior portion was the holy place. This was that, that first section, the daily section. Then, the second interior was the separated by a veil, and it was the holiest place. It was the holy of holies. So as I said, the first section, it was used daily for the requirements that the priests were meant to accomplish. They were in there all the time doing what God asked them to do. But this second section, the most holy place, was only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement. The one day the priest entered to atone For the sins of the people. That was this one day a year that they entered this holiest place. Now each of these sections consisted of very specific things. And these very specific things are mentioned actually all throughout Scripture. And items that on the surface, that might seem basic. It might be something that you just read and, and skip over. Like, oh yeah, there's a lampstand. That's cool. There's a table. All right, well, let's move past this. Let's get to the next section. But if you do that, you're going to miss some of the most beautiful Old Testament and New Testament connections. So first on this list, in the first section, in this holy place, we see a lampstand. So this lampstand, it was an important piece to the holy place because it is what gave the priests light while they were doing their priestly duties. So the lampstand, it was actually, it was a menorah, and it was patterned after a budding almond tree. And that's actually significant in Scripture, this budding almond tree, and we're going to see more of that here shortly. So we see examples of this all through the Old Testament, but more specifically, and you can write these verses down if you want. There's so much Scripture we're going to be going through that you can write it down if you want to. Um, So specifically for this lampstand, Exodus 27, 20 through 21, 37 through 8, Exodus 7 through 8, and Leviticus 24, 1 through 4. All of these passages are specifically about this lampstand. So in these, we see instructions given for this specific piece saying that it is to always be well-supplied with pure olive oil for the sake of it always being lit— this lampstand was never to go out. It was one of the priestly responsibilities is making sure this lampstand never went out. It wasn't just an item. It was a representation to the people at that time that they would have known really, really well. It was a reminder of those being written to. And for the people in the Old Testament, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus. So throughout scripture, it says that Jesus is the true light of the world that would never be extinguished. In John 8, 12, it says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And every time I go through this book, anytime time I get to deep dive into passages like this, it gets me really excited. Because even from one simple little lampstand, We see this in-depth connection that God was making from the beginning forward. His goodness is seen in all of Scripture, and even in a lampstand. We get to see that it's not just one piece of meaning, but there's actually more to it. Everything ties together in different ways. So next on this list is the table and the bread of presence. In Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, again, that's one you can write down if you want to, I'm not gonna go through it, but it talks about that as with all of the items that are being discussed, the table was overlaid with gold that was set in place facing the lampstand and had 12 loaves of bread on it. So these loaves of bread were consistently replenished once a week. And not only were they replenished, but they were actually eaten by the priests that were on duty during Sabbath. So, in other religions at this time, when food was set out for the God that was being worshiped, it was for that God to eat, which is not in this case whatsoever. It's actually the complete opposite in this specific case. Because the 12 loaves were representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. In this, it's a reminder of God sustaining his people, not us trying to sustain God. And not only that, but this table was faced towards the light that never went out. So this bread, the facing of this light, this was also a foreshadowing of Jesus being the bread of life. John 6, 35 says this, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Isn't that incredible? Just the connections brings us into verses 3 and 4. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna of and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. So we see the author here making the transition from the first section of this tabernacle of this tent to the second section. It's, it's almost like the way I was thinking about it. It's like a scene in a movie where you have the camera walk into the room and you're, you're in the first room and it's slowly panning around. And you see this little light glimmering and the lampstand and the table. And then all of a sudden you see this giant veil before you this veil that leads into this ominous second room. This is the second room of God's presence. This is the second room of atonement, the second room that no one but the high priest can go into or they would die. This is the room that we're about to enter. So the first item mentioned on the list in this room is the golden altar of incense. So the golden altar is an important piece to the tabernacle. And in Exodus 30, 10, it actually says that it's most holy to the Lord. So this was where the high priest was told to burn incense every morning and every twilight. It was supposed to be a consistency of this uh, beautiful aroma throughout the tabernacle. So an interesting point about this specific altar was that in Hebrews it says it was in the Holy of Holies, as we just read. However, from Exodus and Leviticus we can see it was in fact the separation point between the holiest place and the holy place. Exodus 36, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet you. the author in hebrews right here he's actually referencing that on the day of atonement incense from the altar was brought through the veil into the holy of holies the most interesting thing about this incense though the interesting thing about this incense that came off this altar comes from leviticus 16 12 through 13 that says this And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so he does not die. So in this, we see that the incense from the altar is what creates the cloud that covers the mercy seat so the priest wouldn't die. Bringing into play the importance not only of this altar that's being referenced, but of the incense that was burned on the altar. Because without it, like we said, the priest would die. So this is a powerful reminder from the author of Hebrews to the people that he's writing to. This is a powerful reminder of disconnect. Disconnect between God and man. A reminder that even on the one day a year that atonement happened, God's presence still had to be hidden from us sinful, broken people by a cloud of incense. The next on the list was the ark. Now I don't know about you. Every time I think of the ark, I'm taken back to my childhood Taken back to a specific movie and a specific ride at Disneyland, every single time I hear the word, thanks, son, Indiana Jones, you are correct. Yeah. Indiana Jones, right? Anytime I hear the word Ark of the Covenant, because you have this, it's this daring tale of a history professor who somehow is also an archaeologist, who somehow is the most daring of all the explorers, he's always getting shot at but never getting shot, it's great. So you take this explorer, this archaeologist, with an obsession to find lost things, and what do you pair him up with? Obviously, the Ark of the Covenant. So in all the thrill and the excitement, there's so much wrong with the betrayal of this Ark. And from this lack of understanding in our culture, it creates a lack of care for the truth behind this mask of Hollywood that has been created. So to understand the deep connections made between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't have to look much further than this ark that's in the Holy of Holies. So first things first, the tabernacle is also known as the tent of testimony, which makes sense when we're talking about this ark, because it's not just the Ark of the Covenant, it's also called the Ark of the Testimony. The reason that the ark is called this is because of the covenants that it contains, The first thing that it has in it is the Ten Commandments. So these Ten Commandments, it would be a reminder to the people of the covenants made with Moses on Mount Sinai. The law of the covenant being supplied in its earliest form in these tablets, and not just these tablets, but they were actually written by God himself. The next item in the ark was the golden pot of manna. So manna meaning what is it, was the bread that God sent from heaven for the Israelite people in the desert, so, and this was to feed them when they were in need of food. And this was placed in the ark as a reminder of God's goodness and his provision for his people. Exodus 16.32 says this, Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omar of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt, it's a reminder. Moving on, it says the next item was Aaron's rod. Not just Aaron's rod, Aaron's budding rod. Numbers 17, 2 through 10. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumbling against me lest they die. So in this we see the description of this rod placed in the ark. God had said, the man's staff that buds will be chosen as the high priest. That was what that that account was referencing, if you didn't catch on to that. So Aaron's rod not only budded, but it produced ripe almonds. Remember the whole almond thing that we talked about before, the menorah looking like the almonds? There's all these connections, different points. Showing God going above and beyond to make the point that Aaron was the true high priest. And God said this was to be kept as a reminder that even in the midst of the Israelites murmuring about who the true high priest was, that God came through and pointed to who it should be. So after understanding the contents and the significance of the ark, we move on to the structure of it in verse 5. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We cannot now speak in detail. So cherubim, if you didn't know, they're angelic beings that we see at the beginning and at the end. At the very beginning, they are the ones guarding the entrance of Eden after the fall. After sin and the fall and brokenness, God placed these cherubim in front to protect it and keep us broken sinners out. And then the last place that we see them is in Revelation as they're crying out and they're worshiping God saying, holy, holy, holy. So these angelic beings made out of gold were actually a twofold representation. One facing the mercy seat, wings stretched. They were stretched out forward in posture of worship. And this is the representation of Revelation's. This is the worshiping cherubim that we see there. And secondly, is those being guarded, those cherubim that we talked about, that they were guards of Eden. Showing them not only as a representation of God's glory and worshiping, but also protection on this ark. So these cherubim were placed very specifically on either side of the ark, pointing towards the mercy seat. Now this was really important. This was the place where atonement happened. In the Holy of Holies, you had the Shekinah glory of God above the mercy seat. The mercy seat sprinkled with blood from the sacrifices. And in the ark, the law that cannot save. So this is an intense picture laid out for us of the old law being sprinkled with blood that cannot save and a reminder of the disconnect from God and man because of it. The people need something else. We need something else. Which takes me to my favorite part of the verses so far, where he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, thanks, man. This might seem simple enough, but it's almost as if the author had to take time to ensure that that rabbit trail didn't happen, that those getting in the weeds didn't happen. He wanted to make sure that he could redirect to what he was actually trying to get to, the main point, instead of just thinking about, like reminiscing about all these different things in the tabernacle. There's a recognition here that it can be easy to get distracted by the things it's easy to nerd out about the connections and the cultural meaning like I just did two seconds ago. you are like, wow, I just spent 40 minutes listening to him talk about culture stuff, and he's saying, like, don't, don't worry about the culture stuff. No, it's important. It is important, but we have to still get to the main point. And after this, you might be asking yourself, like, yeah, what is the main point so far? What is the main point that this, try, this guy is trying to get at that he would actually stop his thought process to then walk into procedure that we're going to be talking about next? Don't you worry. It's coming. I promise. We're getting there. takes us to verse 6 and 7. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So as I said in the beginning, the way these verses are laid out, we see a structure section, what the tabernacle is made of, and then now we go into this procedural section what happened in this tent with the reminder of the things that we already know right the first section was the daily things that were required the second was the one day a year of atonement and it doesn't end there though it brings out something vital to the to the continuation of the author's point and that is blood he brings into play blood the blood's important because it points to the old testament sacrifices in this verse the blood being the most important procedure in this section that gets us to the main point. The shedding of the blood of animals was an insufficient sacrifice, and all it did was cover the sins of the people. And the author is making sure that this aspect of the tabernacle is recognized prior to the final verses in this section. All the things all the duties, everything commanded of the priests at the time led to one day. And that one day had several aspects, but always the focus being on the blood. This blood that was shed to just cover the sins of the people. Take us to verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened if the first section is still standing so by this by the procedures and the protocols laid out before us by these things the holy spirit reminds everyone that while the first section stands people do not have access to god the levitical system did not bring people close to god in fact it kept them away Another way had to be provided. Another way had to be provided for this first section to be brought down. So That first section might not seem like it, but it was a nagging reminder of sin. It was a reminder of brokenness in the fall. We've seen so many words, so so many things, so many reminders. I'm sure you've heard me say the word reminder 4,000 times since we started this. But that's what was happening. It was a reminder. Everything was a reminder. And then it brings us to this place of that section right there. As long as it's standing, you're disconnected. That section is a representation of your disconnect from God. it served as an even more powerful reminder that they were broken, fallen, sinful people, unable to approach God in their imperfection. The systems were a band-aid that were covering this festering wound of sin, and nothing could clear their conscience. Each time they sinned, each time they fell, they had to go through this Levitical system to be covered, not cleared bringing us to the main point of these verses the author was getting to, the verses he wanted to address, hence the lack of detail. He's trying to get to this point, and that's 9 and 10. 9 saying, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So as you can see, verse 9 is directly connected to 8. 8 ending with God being inaccessible through the processes and procedures, leading us into that being symbolic for the present age. This word symbolic is really interesting because it's actually the word the Greek word parabole, which is the word, which the word parable is derived from. The Levitical system was a parable. It was an object lesson for what was to come in Christ. Everything discussed previously is being broken down to show the people the example all the Levitical system was trying to point to. Then the word for is presented. According to different commentaries, this for is so ambiguous that it could go two different ways. Number one, it's saying that this Comment is referencing the time during the Old Testament. That when he's saying this is is for this time, this is for the Old Testament. And then number two is the most widely accepted, and I think that this is what it is, is that it's the understanding of the word symbolic parable. It's pointing to the Christian era. It's pointing to then and now, or in a more simplistic way, it was an object lesson from the past Pointing to the present. Bringing us to the main drive of the verses this morning, which is the phrase, cannot perfect the conscience. So many moons ago, Jen's brother and I, Justin, used to go out shooting on some land by the landfill. Okay? Seemed like the perfect spot. It was away from everything. There was lots of open space and room, we got to haul old mattresses in and whatever other trash we felt necessary to blow up. It was great. It was a great spot. See, the problem with this is that it was next to the landfill. And landfills, instead of incinerating trash, they bury it. They like to bury their trash. Then more trash is piled up. Then more trash is piled up. And more and more and more. I don't know if you've been by this landfill, but it's like a mountain. It's a gigantic mountain of just trash that they put down, bury, put down, bury, put down, bury. So in the nice cool of the morning, trying to blow stuff up, we lost that sweet, sweet smell of gunpowder and got that nice wafting smell of disgusting, rotting trash. You guys, this is the Levitical system in a nutshell this is what the author has been trying to get at. With all these things they had, the rituals they did, the procedures they followed, it was only burying the trash. It wasn't incinerating it. It wasn't gone. It was still there. It just just kept piling up, piling up, piling up. No matter what these people did, the trash was still there. Their consciences were never truly cleared because the trash had not been destroyed. It was just covered. The sacrifices of the Old Testament did not remove guilty consciences or provide them with full forgiveness of sins. It acted as a burial system. The Levitical ordinances regulated visible actions without changing the inner man taking us to the last words in these verses, until the time of reformation. So if you look at the word reformations, it re- means restoring what is out of line. The author concludes this section by saying, the trash will keep getting buried. The conscience will never be cleared. No matter how much you try to cover it, until something changes, something has to change until what is broken is set astray. So without a change, without a true fix, not just duct tape on the pipe, I don't know if any of you have ever done that before, it does not work. You'll never be saved. You'll never be set free. You'll be in bondage to sin. You will be forever buried in the trash. You might be thinking to yourself, well, that's all well and good but we don't have an old law. How does this relate to me? How does this relate to those around me at all? And I can tell you, this hits home in our culture today just as hard as it did then. Remember the quote at the beginning about the conscience? The conscience is a divinely given warning device that reacts to sin and produces accusation and guilt with the addition, as I said, of or conviction. let's look at that in the context of the here and now so many different people in so many different ways are trying to clear their conscience they're trying to clear that accusation trying to clear the guilt of sin in their lives by guess what burying it Now the burial system here it might look a little different than it did back then, but it's still the same in the end. Think about someone that messes up royally and wants to feel better. I mean, honestly, we I can I can pinpoint so many different times I've seen or heard people do this. They mess up, and what's a good way to bury that and push it down? Uh, let's do something good. Let's do a good deed, right? Maybe, maybe I'll open the door for an old lady and let her walk through. There you go. My conscience is clear for, for a little bit. Maybe I'll go to church. Maybe that will make me feel better and clear my conscience. Maybe I'll do anything nice that I can think of to clear it. Now, they might feel better in the moment. They might think they fixed the problem. But soon enough, that stink of the buried trash wafts up. Bringing this sick cycle of accusation, guilt, and then burial. And it doesn't end. Sound familiar? Not only is this cycle hard, it's slowly killing the person. It isn't just a, a hard thing to deal with, like, oh, we shouldn't be burying it. It's actually killing them. Until the weight of this trash will crush them for eternity. Again, the problem with trash, the problem with the sin we're talking about, the problem with all the brokenness is that it needs to be obliterated to truly have a clear conscience. It needs to be obliterated to truly be saved. It needs to be destroyed. The only way to live And the only way to live forever is to have the junk destroyed. Now enter Jesus. Look back at all the stuff we talked about. Look back at all the procedures. Look back at the old law as a whole. One thing rings true through it all, and that is that every aspect points straight to Christ. Jesus came and fulfilled He is the true light. He is the bread of life. And most important of all, he was the perfect sacrifice that doesn't just cover, but destroys the brokenness. Spilling his perfect blood so that we could be back in this right relationship with God that we don't deserve. Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of his blood not just covered our sins, it destroyed them it burns the trash forever and rising from the grave he shows his power over the sin and over this death jesus is the only way to truly clear a conscience because in him all the sin all the brokenness is gone our sin is as far as the east is from the west Psalm 103, 11 through 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It says there's no condemnation in Christ in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With a consistent reminder throughout Scripture that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through him. Through Jesus, the first side of the tent is removed. Through Jesus, we're set free. And through Jesus, it's no longer accusation and guilt because our sin is forgiven. In Jesus, it is conviction. That's why I put that one in there, in that quote. It's conviction to better honor him, to serve him and grow closer to him. Our conscience is now Jesus instead of the accusation of guilt and sin. Today, if you're sitting here with a guilty, accusing conscience, trying to bury it all, trying to do it on your own, don't. Give it to Jesus. Put your faith and trust in the only one that destroys the trash. And it's not a ritual to do this. It's not Levitical law. It's not some chant you have to do. Romans 10 9, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is the only way to have a true, clear conscience. And if you're sitting here today, having put your faith and trust in Jesus, Knowing he is the one who took your sin away, I pray this is a reminder to you of how much better Jesus is than anything else. That he did what he did for you. I pray that living in this broken, sinful world still, you're reminded of his mercy, his grace, his kindness towards you. He took it all so you could be. clear. When you go home today, I want you to write down these verses we talked about. I want you to meditate on them, reminding yourself of what Jesus did for you. That we don't have to work for it. He did it. It's by grace alone. And I pray that this will also drive you to tell others about this incredible good news of Jesus so they too can stop burying and see what true freedom is that only comes through Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for these incredible truths, these connections we get to see that you made from beginning to end, Jesus, in that you did it for us. You so desperately wanted to be back in a relationship with us that you gave everything to burn the trash and not just bury it. God, I pray you would remind us of this every day. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.